continuing our study through the Acts of the Apostles, looking at some of the behind the scenes material. Hopefully that um, as we're going through the book of Acts on Sunday morning that you get a deeper sense of uh, some of the issues that are coming into play. And again, our purpose for this is not just to kind of add knowledge to knowledge, but to add to our understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Um, a deeper understanding or a better understanding so that we might become more obedient to him. Um, I also think that good knowledge about who God is um, and then following in the wake of that knowledge uh, in this life of obedience really produces a great sense of joy. Um, You know what it's like when someone gives you some insight into who God is and then all of a sudden you have this feeling inside, this joy, right? Where does that come from? Paul says that knowledge can puff up, but love builds up. And I genuinely believe that um, for those of us who desire to know God, that that excitement, that joy that exists, one of the reasons why I love to be a student as much as I love to teach, as much as I love to teach, I love learning about, about God in terms of who he is. And when all of a sudden somebody says something and it just strikes a chord in me and it produces this joy in me. Um, It's because I have a deeper understanding of who he is. Therefore, I'm going to have a better way to obey him. And that just pleases me because I like to know who he is. So hopefully that's what you're going to pick up on tonight as we talk about baptism in the New Testament world and kind of how it fits into everything. Before we do, I want to make three just quick references to, to a couple of things. First of all, um, we've got a new class that we're going to be walking through in light of the fact that um, there are many classes that we offer here that are kind of at that higher level. Uh, we do a lot of school of theology stuff. We do even, even this can sometimes be uh, rather hard hitting or um, our Tuesday Bible studies that we do. Some of them can be on the deep side if we're just honest and we can do that. But that's not really all we care about. We really care about kind of coming alongside everyone wherever they are at and helping them grow. And so in light of that, um, we're going to be doing a a new class called Basic Matters. So you've probably seen these uh, in the the hallway. So starting on September 30th, um, this Basic Matters class is going to help people understand kind of the, the, the rudimentary, the foundational, the basic ideas of the faith. And I would say if you would like a refresher course in terms of what are the basic aspects of the, of the Bible, what are the basic aspects of the faith, I'd love to go back. Maybe for you it's a refresher or maybe you know somebody that this could really, really benefit. I'm going to have um, some cards up here that kind of give the, the basic understanding of what the class is going to be. And when it starts, it's not an ongoing class. It's just basically a, a, a well, relatively short, a short-ish class that's going to walk people through the issues of membership, not just of Sunnybrook, but like of the church. Membership, doctrine, and transformation. And so uh, if you have an interest in that, those are available here. On the other side of the spectrum, um, we are starting our classes here next week. Uh, we have two of our big ones that kind of kick off. So on Monday night, we have our School of Theology, which is, in the instance, the opposite of the Basic Matters class. So for those of you that really love digging in much deeper, on uh, Monday night, we've got a new class that we're going to be starting. It is on a topic that I hear a lot of people have an interest in. It's on um, how the Old Testament prophesies the coming Messiah and how the Messiah fulfills those promises or those prophecies. And so it's going to be on Monday nights. And so if you've got an interest in seeing kind of what that looks like and how those fit together, 
Um, Mac, that starts, is it 7, 6.30, 6? 6? 6.30 to 8 o'clock, we'll be meeting in the hub. And so if you've got an interest in that, we would love to see you there. So it really is, it's one of those topics that I hear a lot about. Uh, man, I wish I knew more about how the Old Testament prophesies who Jesus Christ is. How do we read those prophecies? Is Jesus the fulfillment of those prophecies? Um, I'm also excited to tell you that uh, this is not my third. This is just the subset of my second announcement. Um, that we're in the process of finalizing some dates for our tour guide that we know in Israel, Uri. Um, Goldflam is going to be coming over in uh, January slash February, I believe maybe February, the beginning of February. He's going to be coming over to do some teaching for us. And so we're excited. We'll have him here for about a week, and he's going to be doing a number of different classes, a number of different lessons on, on the Bible, on, or more on like the biblical uh, geography of the land, and maybe even offer some uh, opportunities for you to learn a little bit more about what's happening right now in the Middle East. Anybody ever have interests in like how Israel is relating to its neighbors? He's got lots of ideas and opinions about that. Uh, he has become a very, very, very good friend. And uh, I'm excited about having him come over. So whenever I talk about Israel or anything like that, and a lot of people have questions about how the Bible predicts a Messiah. And so our Monday night class is going to be dealing with a lot of those issues. Lastly, you've seen this in our uh, bulletin the last few weeks, and you'll see it in it for another, a few more weeks. Um, it is in light of what's coming up. Uh, so on the 23rd, on that Sunday night, we're still kind of finalizing the details because we'd love to do it outside. We'd love to kind of go out to McMurtry or to somewhere and have a celebration baptismal service where we've got a number of people. So we're still um, having conversations with a number of people that, that have expressed an interest. Um, if you, I'm gonna be talking about the topic tonight. That's kind of why I brought this up. If you would like to continue this conversation, um, I would love to continue this with you or someone else on staff would love to meet with you and to, and to talk about this. Um, I, I don't wanna make this issue a bigger deal than it is, but I also don't wanna make it less of a deal than it is. And so the word baptizo in the Greek that I'll be teaching on tonight appears 77 times and predominantly in the book of Luke, in the books of Luke Acts. So there's a lot that is going on. Paul, when he writes about it, seems to just assume that this is part of uh, Christian life and church life and uh, just kind of how the mission of the church goes on in the world. And so, therefore, we need to give it um, its proper uh, teaching, its proper understanding. And so that's why we're, we're, we're kind of going after this issue is because it fits really well with the book that we're studying. And, and, and many of us, I would even argue probably all of us, have some ideas about how baptism fits into the plan of salvation. And so tonight, as we start, we're going to be talking about baptism in the New Testament world, but we need to take one step back and make sure that we connect it to a bigger issue. So the bigger issue that we're walking through is the concept of conversion. And so last week, we looked at all the conversion texts in the book of Acts. We saw where the apostle Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. And as he began to speak, people said, what must we do to be saved? They, they knew that a conversion was necessary because of the message that he preached. When Peter said, and therefore God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, they were cut to the heart. And they said, 
Brothers, what must we do to be saved? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, each and every one of you, into the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there was a conversion that, that, that was needed. And so if we don't kind of begin with that basic premise, and I don't always assume that Christian people have that basic premise. I know a lot of Christian people that feel a little bit weird walking up to somebody else and saying, hey, there's something that you need in your life. That if you don't, Believe what I believe, and not because I believe it, but if you don't believe in the gospel or in the good news, um, then you are in danger of God's judgment. That just sounds judgmental, doesn't it? It does. And so we kind of shy away from it. But what if there is a genuine need for conversion? What if there is a genuine need in the world for people to come to faith in Jesus Christ? So the first of all, the question is why, and the answer to that one, and we've already kind of meant, answered it last week, why is conversion necessary is because there are lost people. There are lost people in the world, and that's what the Bible teaches, and so without any kind of apology, I believe that, and therefore that is why we believe in mission, not just in Poland or in Mexico, but in Stillwater. There was a conversion was needed in my life. Okay, so I love how in that sense, everyone needs this, all need this, okay? The second thing is how? How does this conversion take place? And, and, and what I wanna do is I wanna say, listen, like, I, don't wanna, I don't wanna back up too far and then get stuck because tonight we're gonna be talking about baptism and its role within the New Testament world. But how this actually happens, how does someone get saved? I, I wanna just realize the joy of putting everything in its rightful place and I was kind of standing in this general vicinity when I had somewhat of an epiphany as I was doing a communion meditation a number of years ago when I was kind of working through, what am I gonna share, what am I gonna share? And I was preparing for Sunday and I began to think to myself, huh, like it's not we're saved by faith. Even though we say that a lot, how are we saved by faith? Yeah, but no, faith in something. It's not my faith that actually causes this. There's something else. And it is the work of Jesus Christ that saves me. Without the work of Jesus Christ, Paul says, your faith is in vain. If Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead, your faith is useless. You are still dead in your sins. So we might talk about faith like somehow it's step one. It's not step one. My faith is not what saves me. It is the work of Jesus Christ that actually saves me. So when we're talking about the foundation of the how, I'm just gonna put that we have God and particularly the work of Jesus Christ that is the basis of our hope and our life and our salvation. So conversion finds at its very root the work of God and the work of God particularly in Jesus Christ. And that is what we mean is that God offers this graciously to us. Okay? And God has always been gracious, by the way. It's, it's not like the God of the New Testament became gracious. He has always been, been gracious to us. And then therefore, how does the works of God get imparted to us? And the Bible makes it very clear. Is that we do not attain this by our own righteousness, but we attain it by faith. Meaning that I believe that Jesus Christ and the work that he did is the peace, is the agent that causes the peace that I actually have with God. And that is, in fact, 
the saving agent of God. And that's what the Bible teaches. That's why Paul loves to say in the book of Romans or in the book of Galatians, is it circumcision that saved Abraham? Well, no. Well, what was it that saved Abraham? And it was what? For he believed in God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so he goes, very, goes back to the very beginning. There is this faith, but by the way, it is his belief in God. It's his faith in the agent, in God, that saves him. So therefore, when we ask kind of the how piece, I'm not, I'm not trying to change any of this. I'm not trying to question this. Sometimes we can create unnecessary problems by when we begin to kind of ask kind of the other question, which is, well, then when? Like, I, Jim Johnson at one time was lost and at another time was, in fact, saved. When? What does that look like? Now, now by the way, I don't, I don't want to try to kind of draw it all down, out meticulously. It's, it really is rather a complicated question that we want to ask. Um, I do believe that I once was here... And now I'm here, amazing grace. I once was here, but now I'm here. And it's grace that actually has brought me there. But in this faith journey, that's what we're going to look at. And I'm going to say, is, does it appear to be in the Bible, as we kind of read through these texts, does it appear to be that part of the working through the lost to saved, is there a section within that that has, as a gift from God, this incredible sign or um, and when I say this, I mean on God's part, not ours, a work that is done. Because sometimes when we want to talk about baptism, it is described as like this human work. It's something that we must do. Therefore, it is kind of characterized as a work that we do. Yet nowhere does the New Testament describe it like that. It's not a work that we do. So don't even, don't even go down that road with me. Because I'm, ne- I'm not saying it is. I, I know very few people, okay? I'm not saying some can't. But I'm going, very few people have ever really argued that with any kind of legitimacy. It becomes more of an act of obedience to what Jesus commands more than anything else. Which is, by the way, not a work, it's a command. And uh, those, those things are actually a good thing. So as we walk through this loss to save, the other thing I want to add is, and I gotta, I'm going to keep going back, I'm going to keep saying this over and over and over again. Remember that the concept of salvation and saved is not just an on-off switch, that you have in the idea of salvation, you have three different components that describe. So if to be saved is to bring about one's wholeness or completeness, that there is a point in which I was, was lost and now I'm saved, and that is my justification. I am now declared right before God. I'm no longer afraid, afraid of any kind of judgment against me. Now there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is a justification that takes place. But there's an ongoing salvation that takes place in my sanctification, where I become more and more like Jesus and I become more and more obedient, okay? And by the way, so the Bible doesn't just talk about you once were saved, it also says you are being, right? How many of you, I mean, I've probably said this a million times in the last 15 years, okay? And I'm gonna keep on saying it because we keep forgetting it. There is a, I am being saved. That's such a weird language for us, but the Bible uses that language, so I'm not afraid to use it. We are being saved. We are being made more whole as I become more aware of who God is and more obedient to who he is. And then one day, there will be the ultimate glorification of myself where I will be made fully into who God wants me to be and there will be no more sin or death or dying or pain, and I will be in my glorified state, and I will, in fact, one day be saved. 
I'll be complete, I'll be whole, I long for that day. So I have been, I am being, and I will be. And so when you're asking this particular question in terms of when, it's kind of funny because the Bible says, um, like lots of times, lots of different times in lots of different ways, that's what salvation is. And so when we try to narrow it down into this mechanical formula, I've just found that the, the Bible just says, yeah, you're not gonna do that to me. Like I just, I don't even operate like that. I, I think about it in terms of like those significant and every analogy breaks down. Um, but there's a real, real sense in which I felt like when Andrea said yes to me about the idea of getting married, that we were kind of married, even though I hadn't even gotten the ring yet. But I just said, hey babe, like I, I really wanna marry you. And I'd like us to, and when she kind of looked at me and said, yeah, like, I, th- I think we, maybe we should do that. I, I, I remember at that moment feeling like I was married, but I wasn't married. And then I remember taking her back behind the Bamp Springs Hotel. It was beautiful. Um, had deer come in on cue. It was wonderful. And it's this light snow in December. Have you guys ever seen pictures of the Bamp Springs Hotel? It's amazing. And I'm back there and I asked her to marry me and she said yes. And I still remember her in this blue coat looking down at her ring. And I just felt like we were married, but we weren't married. We have so much more we had to do. And then I remember like, you know, right around, the time of the wedding and we're getting stuff done it's just a few days away yes but not and then we were married and now I'm going now are we really married and we're now we are we're really married and so okay so am I done no you're not done you got to kind of stay in it like marriage is this thing that started and it ended and where was it and what was the time and what was the moment and it's just complicated like that it's like kids it's like when kids come. So, so when, when, when was Heidi May? When was it? Well, there was a time in which she wasn't, and then there's a time in which she was, but then there's a time in which she was here, but she wasn't here. And uh, is she here yet? Well, she's here, but she's not here yet, right? And now she's here. But honestly, she's here like this. So I wouldn't say she's like really here. Everybody asks, hey, is she a lot of fun? And I'm going, if this is fun... Honestly, like I want the one I can chase around this room. That's the Heidi May I want, okay? I want that one. And so it's, if you think about it, right? Like that's, this is kind of the way that so many of these things are in life. There's there's not just this, this. There's like this, this. And that's, if if you think about it, like that's what conversion is. Conversion is this ongoing transformation that is designed for the glory of God. So to think of it as like some kind of point in time, like it's just, it doesn't even, doesn't even fit the narrative, does it? Point in time only, doesn't even fit the story. No, my life is for the glory of God for eternity, that I might glorify him into eternity. So we need, to, we, need to, we need to think about that. So let's kind of walk through kind of the story about how baptism may have started. There's still a lot of debate about this, but there are some things that we can know. We can say, hey, this actually existed. Now, whether or not this that existed caused this thing which existed, we don't know. But this did exist. The first one I want to talk about is what we would, we would know about in the Old Testament and then became even more popular after the exile was over, that there were certain ritual cleansing that the, the, the Jewish people would do. And so when they would go up, there would be like this, this bath that they wouldn't bathe in, but that they would wash in. 
And the, the, the water would run down and it would be like this ceremonial cleansing. They had the ceremonial cleansing, if you go back and read the book of Leviticus, of like if you get mildew on your wall, we like to freak out about black mold, right? Like they had, like if you see this thing growing on your house, then here's what you do and here's how you cleanse it and here's how you wash it and here's what you do and then it will be ceremonially clean. And so you've got all of these things in the book of, in the book of Leviticus. And the people of God are told to go through this, and I want you to hear this, this ongoing and repetitive ritualistic cleansing to represent that there is an uncleanness that exists in the world, and then there is a cleanness that exists. And, and, and people are clean and unclean, depending upon what, if they were near a dead body, then they're unclean. And they go through ceremonial washing, and then they become clean. When a woman has a child, she becomes unclean, and then after a period, she becomes clean again. After a woman have engaged in sexual intercourse, they become unclean. And then they be, not, not that it's, hear me, there's a, there's a major misnomer that unclean in the Bible means sinful. It's not, not, it doesn't mean that, it just means it's unclean. That's all it means, that it's unclean. And so after a period of cleansing, then all of a sudden, it's, it's actually clean again. So all of these things are taking place and the Jewish people care deeply about this so that even today, when you go into a Jewish bathroom, you will see like a pot with two handles, one on either side. So you can wash, the, wash one hand, wash the other hand. So they care much about this ritualistic um, cleansing of themselves, of their bodies, particularly their hands, and, um, and also of certain utensils that they would use. Um, I remember Andrea got caught when we were, honey, can I finish telling the story? Please. Um, she got caught. We were sitting down at this table um, and we're eating and she brought with her down to, for, to, for the coffee. She brought like her own coffee mate and in the evening meal where there is no dairy and she's like, okay, but this is like a non-dairy version and our guide, Ori, turns around, shows her the back, and it's actually, no, this actually has, like, it's not just dairy. It can be a whole bunch of different things, any kind of dairy byproduct whatsoever. And he said, by the way, you coming in here with this right here has made this entire room unclean. And, and you don't say that to my wife because she gets really upset in terms of, I didn't mean to do this. She really didn't mean to. I had no idea that bringing that coffee mate would somehow condemn this entire room to being unclean. Um, she follows in good footsteps because the year before I got some really good Jewish butter and I brought it to an evening meal and our guide is watching me put this on, on the bread and, and, uh, and Lelok said, you do know that most likely that knife has never seen a dairy product ever. They have different cutlery for the different meals. And I just felt terrible, I had no idea. They take the clean, unclean thing very, 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 very seriously. So that is going on in the early parts of, so when you think about it, the Jewish timeline, when the Jews go into exile and they go into Babylon, that's when they begin to take the laws of Leviticus seriously again. So by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Pharisees, which their name means the separate ones, are taking the cleansing rituals very, 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 very seriously. So we believe that in some sense, that aspect of cleaning things with water may have been part of how baptism becomes a big part of it. But remember, it is repeated and it is self-administered, okay? The ritualistic cleansings, it is, it's something you do over and over and over again. So I'm, I'm clean and then I'm not clean, and I'm clean and then I'm not clean, and I'm clean and then I'm not clean, and I do it myself, right? I wash myself. That's kind of how that works. The second thing that we actually see in the Bible is Jewish proselytes. 
So a Jewish proselyte is just a Jewish convert. It's somebody that becomes Jewish but has a Gentile background. And when they would go from a Gentile to a Jewish uh, uh, conviction, right, when they would actually uh, convert over to Judaism, they would be baptized. They would be ritualistically cleansed. And, and there's actually like a, a kind of a famous um, uh, rabbinical tradition, and you can go back and you can even read it, where this is exactly what we do. And so if you want to move from a Gentile way of living to a Jewish way of living, then there is this initiation. There is this symbolic sign in which we transfer from being unclean, like a Gentile would be unclean, to being clean. Now, what's interesting is that that was also something that was self-administered. So it was something that you did yourself, which is kind of fascinating. So this is what you would do. You would go down into a body of water, and then you would kind of ritualistically cleanse yourself, and then you would be clean. Which is fascinating because um, the, couple, the first two times when we uh, went to Israel and we were up in one area where the Jordan is, where uh, baptism, so the, the trip that we were on there, the second trip and also the first trip that we were on, um, you'll see people and from different persuasions, different Christian people. I remember seeing one lady from Russia and it, they, they self-baptize. She just went in and it was just her basically just kind of going down under the water and then back up. She did it three times. Down under the water and come back up. Down under the water and come back up. And what is she doing? She's baptizing herself. And so this is kind of goes actually back to how Jewish proselytes would, uh, would, would be converted. So you've got Jewish cleansing things, immersing things with water. You actually, this is a way to get into the Jewish community is through baptism. And then all of a sudden, this one, John the Baptist, right? John the one baptizing, all of a sudden, he does something, by the way, that is somewhat unique. John comes along, and he then, um, as, you, as you know the story, John is this picture of, of, of one in the spirit of Elijah who is going to come that was prophesied by the book of Isaiah, particularly in the, in the, in the, 40, in the chapters 40, 42, describes, prepare the way for the Lord, repent, get your life right with God through repentance so that you could prepare to meet him. And then one thing that John does is he then begins to baptize people. So John's baptism, and you can even see, I'll give you some text to kind of go back and take a look at. If you, don't, you don't have to just read like John chapter 1, and you can kind of get a sense of that. But even going into Acts chapter 19, you actually see a group of people that the Apostle Paul meets, and all they know about is John's baptism, which is a baptism of repentance, which really lines up a lot with kind of what you see with the Jewish ritualistic cleansing. There is this, um, this desire to be cleansed, but John says, hey, listen, like I don't, he, he warns actually people that are just kind of showing up. Who warned you to free the wrath that was to come? Do works of repentance is what he uh, condemns the Pharisees for trying to go through the motions. And he says, do works kind of in line with repentance. Uh, so be very, very careful just trying to mimic some kind of conversion with God who knows the heart. John really warns against that. And so John all of a sudden kind of does this new thing where he is baptizing people, demonstrating this repentant, cleansed heart. And so, interestingly, 
you see a number of people, every, literally uh, one of the gospel writers, can't remember, I think it's Matthew, and everyone was going down to John to be baptized. And then even who? Jesus is baptized, which is kind of interesting. So Jesus, why do you need to be baptized? For repentance, for the remission of sins? And what does Jesus say? Do you remember what his phrase is? No, but to fulfill all righteousness. That's why I need to be baptized, to fulfill all righteousness, which scholars play around on that quite a bit. But Jesus himself is actually baptized. Um, so you actually see John's baptism. And, then, and, and so by the way, that there was something that was done once. It's not something that happened over and over and over again. And it was no longer other, or it was no longer self-administered. It was actually done to you by somebody else. John was the one, John the one who, was, who would baptize. And so that was a bit of a shift. Instead of it being more of a kind of a self-administered one to provide ritualistic cleansing, this was one that was, was administered by somebody else. And it was done once to demonstrate this, this changed heart, this repentant heart. Which it's kind of interesting because when you think about the ritualistic cleansing that happens with a lot of immersing and with water, it's kind of this ongoing process. How many of you even have kind of felt like, yeah, I don't know if my baptism stuck. I think I need to do that again and be washed, right? You guys know where I'm coming from on this, right? It just, it seems like that. But it's interesting because that, that means that the way that you're looking at baptism is far more like the Jewish concept of it. And you're holding on to one aspect of what the sign might symbolize. But as we're going to see here as this unfolds, it actually symbolizes a whole lot more. It's not just this kind of this ongoing cleansing. But actually we see in John and then we see in the church, we see a different emphasis about what baptism is all about. And so we're going we're gonna to kind of recognize that. So Christian baptism, much like John's baptism, is once... It's administered by somebody else. And, and, and like John's baptism, it actually has like a moral and ethical. Like if you think back like to the Jewish cleansing, they weren't moral issues. It wasn't like, hey, I sinned. It was, no, I touched a dead body, which was a sign of not, not morality, but it was just this clean and unclean. Like I said, you could be unclean and it not be any, have anything to do with sin. You're just unclean. But now all of a sudden, what John does is John, in the preparation for the Lord, he calls the people to repent. Now all of a sudden, there's a moral and ethical, and even beyond that, there is a moral and an ethical and a preparation to meet God that is happening with John's baptism. And then we see in Christian baptism, kind of that same in line of thinking with John's baptism is that it is once, it seems to be administered by somebody, and it is for moral, ethical preparation for God's scenario, not an ongoing washing to be cleansed scenario, okay? Now, if you don't mind, I'm gonna do a kind of a real quick thing on what the word means, because this is something that I find fascinating. Um, people love to talk about that they were baptized, and the word baptism in English Looks like that, baptism. But interestingly enough, all that is, is we took the Greek word, the Greek word, B-B-A-A-P-P-T-T, the verb, not the noun, baptizo. And so all we did was we took the Greek word, baptizo, and we transliterated it, Okay? We transliterated it, which means we just found an English letter for a Greek 
letter, and then we just went, it's the same thing. So here's why I say that, because when people say, hey, I've been baptized, That's just what the English transliteration, what is this word, not transliterated it, but if you were to like translate it, like what does the word mean? Not not how how do you spell the word? This is how you spell the word. What does the word mean? And so I'm gonna give you three different ones. The first one is just the word bapto, which is sometimes uh, translated like baptize, but it's usually translated actually dip. And so the word bapto is actually found four times in the Greek New Testament, and it means to dip, or to plunge, okay, underwater, that's kind of what it means. It's found four times. One time, um, it's Lazarus, remember? Dip your finger in this and cool my tongue. Do you remember that story, Luke 16? Um, And then Jesus says, when they're around the table, whoever dips the bread with me, that one is the one who'll betray me. That appears in two different gospels. And then in Revelation, I think it's 14, Jesus is depicted and his robe that he is wearing is dipped in blood. Okay? So that's the, those, those times that you actually see the, that, that word. But that's the only time it's used. It's never used of people, but it really means to dip or to plunge. Okay? So that's bapto. Now the word baptizo is the one that appears 77 times in the New Testament. And it is the one that if we, were to, if we were to translate it, not transliterate it, this is called transliteration. But if we were to translate it, it would actually be the word to immerse. Okay? To immerse. And, and so just to be clear, I always like to ask people, so when were you immersed? And they go, well, I wasn't really immersed. And I said, okay, well then at least, at least we're just got, we got the same terms going on here. Right? By the way, I'm not trying to be a stickler about it. I'm just saying, hey, if you want to say that it's something that's totally different, I, I'm even okay to say, hey, listen, it's, you're going to work it out. I'm going to work out my salvation. We're all going to try to figure this out. But if we just go back to the New Testament and we see how it's, how it's functioning and even what it's doing. And I'm not even, I'm not even a hyper-literal guy. Like I get that sometimes that word baptizo is even used figuratively to be baptized with fire. Right, This baptism that Jesus describes, the baptism of suffering, that's this immersion of suffering that Jesus is going to be. So it can be used figuratively, by the way. Okay? So it's not just always literal, meaning conversion, someone in a baptistry getting plunged beneath water. But it does have this, it is this concept of immersing. Okay? And so that's why when you, when you look in the text, you, you actually see, so in the Ethiopian eunuch, here is much water. What is to prevent me to be, from being baptized? Answer, nothing. So they go down into the water, and then Philip and the Ethiopian unit come up out of the water. That's the kind of language that is used. And we'll find out why that there is some richness that is in that. But the concept of baptism or baptizo is this concept of immersion or to immerse. And so you could literally take the word baptize, and in the vast majority, not all, but in the vast, vast, vast majority, the 75 times, 77 times, you could literally use the word immerse there. And said Some translations have actually done this. They have felt that it would be more accurate and less confusing. Because for many Christians, is they hear the word baptism or baptize, and they, well, it's the same thing as sprinkling. Um, I, I get what you're saying. And, and sure, in some really loose sense, I'm, I, I get what you're saying. You're going, this was the means by which. Sure, I totally get that. But it's really not the same thing. It's, it's not the same thing. The, the church never practiced that. 
Not saying that this is, by the way, I'm not saying this is even bad. I'm just saying this is not this. That's all I'm saying. This is not this. And so as we look at kind of how this develops, a lot of it has to do with even the wording. And we'll see kind of in, 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 one, in one small but kind of real sense, you'll see why this really begins to matter. The last word that you'll actually find in the New Testament, and I can't remember the exact number of times that it's used, 15, 17, something like that, is where it's used as the noun, right? So the baptism, the baptism of John. And so that's just where it's used as a noun. So instead of it being, and they baptized the entire household, it talks about the baptism that, has, that, had, that had taken place. Um, and so the concept of all three of these words, bapto and baptizo and baptisma, is the idea of to immerse or to plunge beneath. Um, there was a really fascinating quote. I don't think I'd ever read it before, but I kind of stumbled across it in my reading recently. And it says this, the clearest example to show the difference in meanings between baptizo and bapto, there was a, in, in the year 200, there was a Greek poet and physician who was describing the difference and in, it is in a recipe to make pickles. And here is what he actually says. The vegetable first must be baptoed, meaning you take the pickle or the cucumber and you dip it, okay? It says that you actually, you dip it into the boiling water and then you baptize it in the vinegar. See, one, you bapto and then you baptizo it in the vinegar. And the comment that the Jewish or that the, 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 the Greek physician said was, the second, which is the act of baptizing the vegetable, will produce a permanent change which I thought was kind of a little bit of a kind of a fascinating kind of a, me, a metaphor to, to play off of that. So those are, that's kind of where the words come from. And you'll, like I said, you'll see kind of why that actually matters, okay? The next thing I want to talk about is the practice. So the practice in the, the New Testament world, and so I'm going to be even talking about that, not just in the New Testament world, meaning the, the very specific time within the book of Acts, but we'll kind of even extend it a little bit. So there's two words there that you may not, you may know or you may not know. The first one is just the word paedo-baptism, which is paedo just meaning for the word child. Um, paedo-baptism is something that was actually developed in early church history. There's some debate about in terms of when it was, sometime between 400 and 600 AD, the church itself began to baptize infants, okay? Now, depending upon how the debate goes, some people like to have it early, some people like to have it late, but there's a lot, there is interestingly some real debate about in terms of like why and when this happens. Now, let me kind of help you understand kind of the context for how this actually developed. Um, you have in the book of Acts, the 120, say, that are up in the upper room, um, particularly the 12. And so you have the 12 and then the 120, and then you have the rest of the world which are lost. And so we need to go out, we need to share the good news. And when then once those people hear the good news, what do we do? Well, we baptize them. Okay, great. That, I mean, so far that just makes sense, right? Like you've never heard the good news. And so we meet the Roarchs, and the Roarchs get saved, and so now they're, what do we do? Well, we baptize them, and we'll see kind of why in a moment. So we baptize them. And now, all of a sudden, the Roarchs decide, well, we want kids, and so they have kids. And when they have kids, now what do we do? How do we initiate those kids into it? And the church began to ask this question. How do we, how do we take care of their little ones? So, and then they begin to kind of think and theologize, which is what Christians do, and it's not even a bad thing. And they go, well, I mean, the old people of God had circumcision on the eighth day that would mark them. And so they began, okay, and again, trying to figure out what do we do? 
with our children that have, have some kind of connection or desire to be uh, connected with God. And so they began to, 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 to in, in essence, to not baptize, but they would then sprinkle these infants to show a dedication or a commitment to, to, to God. To help. Interestingly, it's, it's during this process that the work of the baptism itself begins to do more of the work than the faith that we actually see in previous centuries. It's interesting that the more you kind of head down this road, the more that you are inclined to actually believe it's the baptism that does the work. I'm not saying that's true for everybody. I'm not saying that's true for everybody even today. But I'm saying why that happens is, to, in, is in response to that. So this becomes uh, an answer. And so there are many, many churches that still baptize, immerse, converts, but in terms of their children, when they get to be of a rather young age, that is when um, they, they would actually sprinkle. I can't remember the exact date that they would do it, but it, they were actually pretty young. Um, and by the way, this is the other thing I found rather interesting as I was doing my study for, for tonight. Um, they, they, they never, they had to, re- the church has always wrestled with, how many of you, like when a little child gets baptized, you go, ah, do they know what they're doing? Anybody else? The church has always asked that question. The church has always wrestled with that. The church has never had an answer for that. Well, I'm sorry, they, they sometimes have answers and then it gets kind of crazy, okay? So whenever anybody else comes trying to give like this really hard answer, that's when you know the church is about to get nuts for a little while. But the church has always been wrestling with that question. But here is what they are getting after. Does the child understand and exhibit a trust or a faith in the work of Christ? That's what they're looking for. That's what they've always looked for, which is the second one. So not pedo-baptism, but credo-baptism, meaning that they express commitment to a creed, okay? Another way that you could talk about a credo-baptist credo or a credo-baptism is, is also believer's baptism, okay? You'll hear that sometimes. Believer's baptism, which is that I express a belief or a faith in Jesus Christ, and then after that, I am immersed. But somewhere in here, Some scholars say in the early 400s. Others say after the death of Augustine and a number of others. So the advent of Gregory the Great, kind of really powerful. Um, Some consider to be the first Catholic pope. Obviously the Catholics do not consider it that way. Um, But Gregory the Great was a great solidifier of things. Somewhere during that time period, the church began to, on a more regular basis, sprinkle infants who would then later get confirmed after going through a period of catechesis or instruction. Um, and then they would kind of assume the faith that their parents bestowed upon them when they were younger, okay? So that became more of a church tradition. It was not anything that we actually found in the New Testament. It's not anything that we find in the book of Acts. It's not anything that we find even in the first few hundreds years of the church. Um, again, I'm not, I'm not even trying to say, hey, that's bad or that's wrong. I'm just saying it was a development, okay? There's lots of developments that we've actually, actually had. So let me, let, me, let, me, let me share with you kind of like what, what I want to call like the theology of baptism so you can see a lot of the rich imagery that helps us understand the value and the importance of this. So I've taken this, this quote from, from, from someone that I think is uh, it's really, really helpful to, for us to kind of see all of the, the powerful images and metaphors that kind of go along with baptism. So here's how he describes it. Baptism is the sign and seal of the new covenant inaugurated by Christ's death and resurrection, signifying, 
So notice how much of it is a sign or a signifier, signifying the promise for the one baptized that sins are forgiving, forgiven, which has to do with the, the kind of the washing away, which the New Testament writers say, be baptized, wash away your sins. And that a new life, that's going to be found in Colossians 2, a new life in Christ is received. And that God, that should be and, and that God gives the person a new heart and the indwelling Holy Spirit by faith. This is what baptism is designed to do. Kind of the theology of baptism is to, is to provide this rich context in which all of these things are going on. That's why to just kind of see it in a reductionistic way, to even see salvation in a reductionistic way, kind of fails to recognize the beauty of the fullness of what God is actually doing. So here's how I want to describe, um, and I'm kind of playing around this with a couple of people on staff this afternoon. So this is how the instruction, generally speaking, happens where someone moves from lost to saved. Okay, so these, this is kind of the, the process that is necessary, and I'm going to kind of like slow it down so we can see what is going on. Someone, little or not little, by the way, um, they need to hear the gospel, okay? Which is why Paul says, and if, some, if someone doesn't go and tell them, how will anybody be saved? So one of the very first steps that's necessary is they need to hear it. You need to hear the gospel, which is the good news. That what? That Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins and he established a kingdom. And now you have been invited to find peace with God through the work that he did that you cannot do. To take care of your sin problem with God so that you could be part of this everlasting kingdom that he has established and continues to work through by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of those who are his. See, that's the good news. What do I have to do? You have to believe. That's it. Like, I don't, it doesn't cost me a hundred bucks, no. Like, I don't have to, I don't have to be, it's, it's, yes, it is by faith that we are saved. So we hear this good news. So then we change our mind about the direction that we are going in. We change our mind about, like, why we're here and what we're doing. We, in essence, we repent. And again, that word, metanoia, there is this change of mind that exists so instead of me being right and me having my way, God is right and God is going to have his way. Instead of me trying to justify my actions, instead of me trying to justify my goodness, now all of a sudden I'm in a position of brokenness. I, I, I deal with this question all the time. I'm in a marriage where there is a problem, okay? In any marriage where there is a serious problem, and they say, how do we get beyond this serious problem in our marriage? I say this, unless the person who is wrong breaks, I don't know if it'll ever get fixed. They, they need to break. I've seen the worst things happen in marriages. The worst things happen in marriages. And I've seen the worst things get fixed because of brokenness. Because of repentance. I really have. Um, I, I, I say this a million times. It's, it's what my, my, my son Mac does so well. He, he, he really has. He's always been so repentant in his brokenness and he's had a lot to repent for he's like his father uh, there's just this 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 brokenness that actually exists and that's what God even loves doesn't he and he desires this so when we hear the gospel Paul says when we hear the kindness of God to us it brings us to this repentant state I'm willing to change my mind and change my heart and change my my, my understanding of this and then there is this gesture of 
And, and it's so, this, this word, is a, it's a beautiful word, but there's so much more to it. There is this faith, but there is this, I love to always say it, you'll catch me doing this all the time. When I talk about faith, I'm talking about trust. To have faith in is to trust. And so when I say this, do you have the faith, do you trust that God smiles at you because you're believing in, you have faith in the work of Christ and not your own goodness? When, when you think of God's disposition towards you, do you believe, do you have faith that God took as a substitute for you being good or you doing anything, the work that Jesus Christ did? Is that your plan? And do you find joy in that? Is that what you're trusting? Or are you also kind of going on mission trips to cover your bases? Or are you also going to church to make sure that just in case, right? See, that's, that's what, I don't know if you're trusting that. I really don't. I mean, you talk to people. This is a question I love to ask. If Jesus Christ were to come back, tell me how you're going to, well, I hope, you know, I mean, it's been a rough week. I can think of three things I did bad this week. Okay, you're fundamentally on the wrong page. Like, you're not getting it. If you're worried about the three things that you did, then you're not understanding what you're supposed to be trusting in. So it's not just this generic faith, it's that the work that Christ did on the cross was the penalty that I should have paid. And I put my faith in that. And I put my trust in that. And that will, without any kind of, the Bible just assumes that that then leads to this next, this next natural step, which I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna just use the word allegiance, but it is actually, you can put in front of that the idea of confession. Spell that right? I think so. Maybe. We'll see. Allegiance. So we confess our allegiance to him. So it's not this faith, and now, hey, because if you think about it, it just doesn't work. This is who Jesus Christ is. This is what he was done. Fine, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take it, but now I'm going to kind of go on with my life. Like, that's, 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 that's not, you didn't get it. I promise you, you didn't go through this stage. If your response to it is, hey, can I just kind of go do what I want to do? Can I still kind of try to figure out how to be happy and live for myself and build myself a kingdom? I don't think, I don't think you heard right and I don't think you repented right. I'm gonna keep going back to that time and time again. It's not, no, you need to try to be better. You need to try to be a better person. No, I'm gonna go back, I'm gonna tell you the gospel again and we'll see if we can get a response from you. And this is why I, I love to even beg people <laughs> to believe the good news of Jesus Christ so that they can find faith. So why? They can swear their allegiance to him. This is the confession. Jesus Christ is my Lord. I understand the gospel. I understand the good news. I understand that there is a God and he is Lord of the universe. I understand that I have lived in rebellion against him. I understand that one day I will see him and I understand that God in his love has made a way for me and he is my Lord and Savior and I love him and I just desire to make much of him in my life. That's what faith in Jesus Christ is. So these allegiance, I just naturally swear to him. And so then once I'm swearing this allegiance, now me and Jesus, we're like one. And so now this next step is to be united with him. What does that look like? See, this is the beauty of it. What does it mean to be united with Christ? Well, let's think about it. What was it that Jesus did that did it for us? Sermon on the Mount? Feeding in the 5,000, what was it? Death, burial, resurrection. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
is what is our salvation. And therefore, we are united with him, bringing together all of these actions. Now, all of a sudden, I am united with him in what aspect of him? In his death. And in what aspect of him? Also in his resurrection. This here becomes a natural response. That's why Jesus says, I want you to go out and I want you to make disciples. And then he gives two ways in which we make disciples. Are you ready? And these are the two ways in which we make disciples. Number one, by baptizing them. Okay? We make disciples by, this is I mean, what, what the text explicitly teaches. We make disciples by baptizing them into Christ. And then by teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded. Those are the two natural explanations. We make disciples, that's the command, by baptizing them and by teaching them to obey everything. That's how that that text actually works. So when someone goes through this process, they are united with Christ, with his death, with his resurrection. They are buried with Christ and then they are raised to walk a new life. It is during this this is where it gets really interesting. The one I don't know what to do with is the Bible talks a lot that this is where forgiveness takes place. The forgiveness of sins. By the way, the forgiveness of sins is also talked about here. Just Just when I think I have like this, here's how it has to be, God's like, huh, I get to... I'm going I'm to do it this way, right? <laughs> and I, God can do it any way that he wants. So we see this, this is kind of like in this area here is where the forgiveness of sins, but also in baptism. Be baptized. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness into the forgiveness of your sins and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's that last one, is to be filled Now that all of this is done and I'm united with Christ, I now all of a sudden receive what I could never receive before because I wasn't holy before. But now I am holy. Why? By faith. I am now separate. I am now called apart. I am now completely different. So let me read to you some texts that uh, are found in um, the New Testament that are uh, kind of three very, very, very common texts that kind of describe what's going on and you'll be able to see how the Apostle Paul in Romans and the Apostle Paul in Corinthians kind of sees how all of this works. And, and like I said, I, I never want to make this into like an argument one way or the other. I want us to just say, hey, like this is the way the Bible describes how a person comes to faith and this is kind of the natural way in which this happens. Paul says in Romans chapter six, beginning in verse three, although in one, he, in verse one, he talks about, so why do we keep on sinning so that grace may abound, may it never actually be? He says this, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, talk about that united, were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. For we have been united with him in a death like his. Speaking out about our baptism. 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have been, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And see, immersion and baptism just naturally fits. I'm not trying to fight against anything else. I'm going, this is what naturally fits in that square, in that block. And this becomes this incredible sign that has been given to us. That's why I consider immersion or baptism to be just this incredible gift from God. Not something to be argued with, but to be enjoyed. Colossians chapter two, verse 12 says it this way. I'll, I'll, I'll begin in verse 11, actually. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Well, it's interesting. He's basically saying, I'm not talking about real circumcision. I'm talking about something far more spiritual. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, which is this repentant heart. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead to your trespasses and to the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Again, not, Paul's not arguing for baptism. He's just going, that's kind of what we are all doing. That's kind of what we all did. And that's why it's every time I help someone understand who Jesus Christ is, this just becomes a natural and normal part of the conversation. Lastly, I'll close with this from 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, I, I think it's fascinating because we'll talk about the different things that save us, but you'll, if you were to read the Bible and even find that phrase, these things that save us, you'll find there's lots of things because there's lots of ways in which we're made whole, by the way. Notice what Peter says here. Maybe, maybe you know this verse, maybe you don't. First Peter chapter three, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's Jim, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And so here, Peter's just saying, this baptism which now saves you. And Peter's not arguing that, man, that water, that just changed. No, he says, not a cleansing of the water, 
but a pledge of a good conscience before God. It is in this baptism connected to our allegiance, which is naturally a result of our faith, which is a natural result of our broken hearts, which is a natural result of hearing the gospel. That's what it is. And this is why, let me, let me, let me close with this statement. I, I meet a lot of people that are genuinely wrestling with what they're missing in their faith walk, like what they're missing, missing in their relationship with God. They hear either, or they, they know somebody else that's, it's, that's connecting to God and they're not connecting, they feel like they're out of step. And I'm telling you, sometimes it's because when we just, well, you know what it's like? It's like I had a young lady in my office and she had been living with her, um, her boyfriend for seven years and then she was getting married. And she said to me, this just doesn't feel special like I thought it would. And I said, well, it's not going to. You've been kind of acting like you're married for seven years. So I'm sorry, it's just not gonna be that way. And when we don't walk people through, truly, when we just kind of try to do that quick sale, we rob them of the joy of the process. I mean, wouldn't it be fun for you to just hear the gospel again for the first time? And just be overwhelmed by God's kindness? And for the first time, yet once again, to be able to say, wow, like I really do trust you with my sin problem. I know sometimes I try to be good to impress you. That's just crazy. It really is what Jesus Christ has done. And man, I I swear allegiance to you all over again. There is something about working through this, and that's one of the reasons why we want to help those people that have no frame of reference. That you are now dead. The old you is gone. And the the new you, by the power of the Spirit of God, now breathes new life through his spirit. That's what we should all have a kind of this natural sign. Here's how J.I. Packer says it. Christian baptism is a sign from God that signifies an inward cleansing and remission of sin. The spirit wrought regeneration and new life and the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit as God's seal, testifying and guaranteeing that one will be kept safe in Christ forever. Baptism carries these meanings because first and fundamentally it signifies union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And this union with Christ is the source of every element in our salvation. Receiving the sign in faith assures the persons baptized that God's gift of new life in Christ has been freely given to them. (laughs) See, now when when I want to talk to you about, hey, you're dead to sin. And you have no frame of reference. I, I need to remember my baptism. Hey, you're now, now free to live in this new life. Yeah, I, I, I can go back and, and, and remember my baptism. That's how it has worked. I believe that's how it should continue to work. Let me pray. God, thank you um, for the Bible and for the way that you have given us things. And um, other people who have wrestled with this, I thank you even for those that I may come to a different understanding on some of how this has worked out. I pray, Father, that... Uh, that we would all have a desire to know you and to know you better. And that, God, we would want the fullness of what you teach and the fullness of how you teach it. And so, God, as we go through the book of Acts and as we even do that personally, may we all ask the question, have we responded to the true gospel? Have we repented? Have we given up our rights and surrendered to you? Father, have we trusted you? Have we been united with you? Have we been filled with you? For this is, uh, it should be, our greatest and only desire. 
It's in Jesus' name, the one that saves us, we pray. Amen. Love you guys, and we will see you Sunday.